Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi guys, and welcome back to Medicus. My name is Rasa, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Lisa Barnes, who is a professor and cognitive neuropsychologist at the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center at Rush University Medical Center. Dr. Barnes has received many grants and has published over 300 manuscripts. She is a principal investigator of two longitudinal community-based studies of older African-Americans and is internationally recognized for her contributions to minority aging and minority health. Dr. Barnes, it's such a pleasure to have you here to talk tonight about this important topic. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners, touching on your education and career progression? Thank you, Raza. It's really great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. As you said in the intro, I am a cognitive neuropsychologist by training. I got my PhD at the University of Michigan many, many years ago. And after my PhD, which was in biopsychology, actually, I was focused on understanding memory and attention. But after that, I did a postdoc at UC Davis in California, where I then started to focus more on brain lesioned patients. So, you know, people who had these rare deficits like, you know, prosopagnosia, which is the inability to recognize faces, stroke victims, things like that, to really try to understand how the brain controls behavior. Then after doing that postdoc for three years, I really started to think about, you know, broader questions. I wanted my work to have more of an impact. No, I mean, of course, studying rare brain lesions is impactful and important, but, you know, you're really only affecting a very small percentage of the population, right? So as I was doing my research, I learned or I realized that Alzheimer's disease was a huge health disparity for a large proportion of the population. And so I decided that I would try to build a career around Alzheimer's disease. And because it's also, you know, a memory impairment, it wasn't too far off from what my training had been, but it was sort of a switch in what I decided to eventually pursue. So what initially sparked then your interest in studying aging and Alzheimer's? Was it really that understanding of disparities? That was part of it, right? Alzheimer's is a huge health disparity for black and brown people. Mm -hmm. But I've always had an interest in memory and the brain from a very young age. In high school, I thought I wanted to become, uh, go to medical school and become mm -hmm. a medical doctor. But I learned that I would not be a good medical doctor <laughs> um, <laughs> for many different reasons after working in the hospital. And so I decided probably sometime in college, I think, probably around my junior year, I decided mm -hmm. that I was going to go a different route and I would pursue psychology instead of becoming a physician. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I had an experience that really changed the trajectory of my educational experience. There's a famous patient named H.M., who in all the psychology books, I'd read about him so much. I actually had the opportunity to work with him in a summer internship because I went to MIT to do an internship during the summer. and my mentor was his doctor, Suzanne wow. Corkin was her name. So we were in Boston and HM lived in Connecticut in like a assisted living facility. Mm -hmm. And we would go and get him and bring him back to Boston for, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months in the summer 
and run all kinds of tests on him to figure out what he could and could not do. And Mm -hmm. so for for your listeners who may not know, HM had intractable epilepsy from a very young age. And at that time, this was like maybe 1940s or 50s, they did an experimental treatment where they removed his hippocampus on both sides. Because we know that epilepsy starts in the temporal lobe area. Mm -hmm. And that's where the hippocampus is. And so that's the site of where the epileptic seizures were starting. So they removed both sides and he had a profound amnesia after Mm -hmm. that. And so that's how we really learned that the hippocampus is really important for memory. You know, we have never done that experiment since. But because he wasn't able to make new memories he became the subject of so many studies and we learned so much from him. And so to have the opportunity to study and work with someone who was like a legend in the field and he didn't even know, right? He had no idea how how famous he was. So that experience really, really solidified my interest in memory. And so that's, you know, sort of started my trajectory down that road. I started out with college students then I went to these rare lesion patients mm-hmm. and then eventually to Alzheimer's disease. That's so fascinating. And wow, such an amazing opportunity to get to work with a patient that is literally in every psychology textbook, right? I mean, I remember right. reading about him in college. So when you said HM, I was like, whoa, no way. <laughs> That's really, really amazing. So for those who may not have experience or know anyone with Alzheimer's disease, can you provide just a brief summary of causes, which, you know, is a little bit tricky, and symptoms of the disease? Okay, so Alzheimer's disease is a form of dementia, the most common form. And dementia is just a loss of memory and and other cognitive abilities. It is an actual brain disease caused by abnormal proteins that build up in the brain. And it's a progressive disease, so it gets worse over time. We actually do not know what causes it. That is still a mystery. But we know there's a number of risk factors that, you know, increase your risk for the disease with age being the most important risk factor. So as you get older, your your risk increases. So people mm-hmm. over the age of 65 have about a 10% chance of getting the disease. But once you reach 85, that goes up to like 50%. So I guess the most common symptoms that people probably will be familiar with is the inability to remember you know, mm-hmm. or learn new information. But over time, since it gradually gets worse, you eventually lose all thinking abilities. You can't take care of yourself. You don't remember how to swallow, you know, Mm -hmm. eventually you become bedridden and eventually die. It's a variable disease. So people can live with it anywhere between four and 20 years. And it varies, you know, from person to person. And we're Mm -hmm. really trying to understand what causes that variability. Sure. Can you broadly discuss where the research stands in terms of early diagnosis, treatment and prevention? Yeah, that's a really big question. You know, we've had so many developments over the past five or six years. Science has moved so quickly. I could point out two major developments in our understanding. One is that we know that the disease actually is present many, many years before people actually show symptoms. So we used to think that Alzheimer's dementia was, you know, people just you know lose their memory and That was a disease process. But we Mm -hmm. actually know that there's the the accumulation of the pathology in the brain, that that's happening decades before you show symptoms. 
And so our knowledge has increased where we are now able to see some of these pathologies either mm-hmm. by measuring them in cerebral spinal fluid through a lumbar puncture or looking at the brain through PET imaging. But the most exciting development is that we now can measure these pathologies in the blood and plasma. And so, you know, because a lot of people don't have access to PET imaging or they don't want to get a lumbar puncture, getting a blood draw and getting your plasma taken and then measuring, you know, amyloid and tau and plasma is available to everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So that's really exciting. So the advent of these uh, biomarkers that allow us to make a diagnosis much earlier, that's a huge development. I guess the second development that has been in the news that everyone's excited about are the new treatments. Mm-hmm. We have not had a new treatment for Alzheimer's disease in about 20 years. The clinical trials have consistently failed. Right. Finally, there has been now three new treatments. One received accelerated approval, aducanumab. Lacanumab just received approval maybe like last month. Then there's another one. I can't remember the name of the third one. Clarity is the research name. Denatamab, that's the third one. Mm -hmm. That one's going to receive uh, approval. But all of these are really revolutionary because they are actually changing, or we think, changing the underlying course of the disease. All the other medications up to date have only targeted the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Nothing was changing the biology. These new treatments are actually attacking amyloid, getting rid of amyloid, which is one Mm -hmm. of the abnormal proteins that builds up in the brain. It's getting rid of the amyloid. And then, you know, by doing that also ultimately affecting clinical progression. So those two things alone are like remarkable achievements. Then there's all other kinds of like genetic research and research done with understanding the progression caregivers. It's a lot going on right now. Mm-hmm. That's why we keep getting so much money in this area because science is exploding. And it's much needed. I mean, like you said, we haven't had any sort of treatments before very recently in so many years. And we all, I think, as a society are aware of the aging population and the risks that aging poses for things like Alzheimer's disease and, of course, the substantial burden that it poses, not on just the individual, but, you know, like you said, the caregivers and society as a whole. Exactly. So it's no secret that clinical trials lack representation and you have set out to change that with Alzheimer's disease. Can you talk about what led you to focus on the Black population in your research? Being a Black woman myself, I have always had an interest in helping my own community. But I think when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, as you said, we are an aging society. The population over the age of 65 is growing more rapidly than any other segment. Mm -hmm. And so as people are living longer, we're going to face this disease more and more, right? Mm -hmm. The other demographic shift that's happening is that our nation is becoming much more diverse. You know, in like 2016, the white population was the majority. But by 2060, Black people, Latino people, Asian people, and Indigenous, they're going to become the majority, you know, altogether. And so the health of our diverse population is going to reflect the health of the nation, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have endeavored to focus in on the Black population because it is a true health disparity population. 
not just for Alzheimer's disease, but for all kinds of diseases, chronic diseases, particularly of aging. And so because I understand that race is a social construct and Mm -hmm. not a biologic construct, I think that there should be ways to identify modifiable risk factors that we can then employ to help reduce the burden of this disease. I focus on the population because it's something that I think we can actually do something about, you know, to really change people's lives. Absolutely. So since 2004, you've been running the Minority Aging Research Study, which is one of the largest studies of Alzheimer's focused exclusively on Black people. What are some challenges you have faced in carrying out this research? Yeah, I guess the biggest challenge has probably been trying to gain trust of the community because we know that African-American people are less likely to participate in research for very good reasons, for a legacy of abuse and Mm -hmm. mistreatment, you know, that goes back so, so many years. And so even though I am a Black researcher, I still represent a white institution. Mm -hmm. And so I have to work just as hard, maybe not just as hard, but I have to still work hard to gain trust of the community, right? It hasn't been a difficult thing to do, but it's definitely something you have to work at. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the other challenge has really been to raise awareness because a lot of people think that Alzheimer's disease is supposed to happen. They think that it's just a part of a normal aging. Mm -hmm. And so really sort of changing the narrative around that so people understand that you don't have to lose your memory when you get older. You know, you can live to be 95 and be sharp as a tech. That's a hard nut to crack when people have this huge myth that I'm getting older, so everything is going to go. That's not completely true. We do get slower. We lose some abilities, but... We don't have to lose our memories. And Alzheimer's is definitely something that we should be able to fight or push back a few years. So I think raising the awareness around that has been a huge challenge. It means I have to be in the community educating people constantly. Absolutely. And I think this probably partly goes back to the trust with the medical system issue, right? Because there is such a mistrust, again, rightfully so, you know, having read medical apartheid um, and understanding the history of experimentation on Black folk in this country, I would have some hesitations with the medical system too. Right. But that probably means that some of the individuals you approach are less likely to have ongoing relationships with a physician where they could be discussing these things, you know, as Mm -hmm. you age and the progression. So it's really you who's having to go in and put in the work to educate them. Exactly. And that's actually a really good point, Raza, because a lot of researchers in on the Alzheimer's field, they actually recruit from their clinics, their memory clinics. And we know that Black people are less likely to have a relationship, like you said, with the mm-hmm. healthcare system, especially with you know memory clinics, which are tertiary care clinics. And so we don't do that. We go mm-hmm. to the community to recruit our participants. And so we put more of the pressure on ourselves to go to where people are, to meet them where they are, rather than expecting them to come to us. We don't put up a flyer in our clinic and say, hey, you want to be in a study? We're never going to get anybody like that. So I think that that has been like one of the success stories for us, that we really, you know, go out to the community to find people. Absolutely. I mean, it's so much more effort, clearly, but I think it's definitely the right approach to do this because 
you know, as evidenced, we haven't been able to recruit diverse populations to clinical trials. And there's probably a reason, probably because, again, the advertisement in the hospital doesn't work. So like you said, you have to go and meet people where they're at. Right. In your research, have you found any differences in how the disease progresses in Black individuals when compared to whites? And if so, do you believe these differences are biological or as a result of the effects of systemic racism? That's a really interesting question. Um, it's kind of like a two-part question. Mm-hmm. So we really haven't found that the disease progresses any differently between races. Mm-hmm. So the, the issue, though, is that there are differences in how people are diagnosed. So if you just rely on cognitive testing to make your diagnosis, we know that Black and brown people tend to perform at lower levels on these cognitive tests compared to white people of Mm -hmm. the same age and education. Now, that's not because of biologic reasons. We know race is a social construct. So if you think about black and brown people compared to white people, there's differences in education. There's differences in quality of education. And all of these things are correlated with test performance, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're relying on test performance to make your diagnosis, you are going to see a difference. Mm-hmm. Now, if you focus on the biology, though, of the disease, so the amyloid and tau that's accumulating, we don't see any differences there. And if you follow people over time and test their memory over time, we don't see any differences in how people change over time. I see. We're not really sure. I mean, there's claims out there that the disease is more common or more prevalent in black and brown people. And that's true to a certain extent based on how you make the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But if you just strip away all of that and look at the underlying biology, the evidence is not there that there's differences. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it kind of leads me into my next question, because like you said, some studies have suggested that black Americans are more likely to suffer from Alzheimer's. But given the limited sample size, I wonder if you can even draw that conclusion. That's a good point. I mean, most of the research in Alzheimer's has been on white people, you know, so we really don't have the numbers that we really need, you know, to make those kinds of conclusions. So sample size is a big issue, you know, but there are other issues, the ones I just talked about as well. So we definitely need a lot more data, especially on the underlying biology. Mm -hmm. So in my studies, I get brains of participants after they have been in the study and they died. They agree to give their brain. You know, with those kinds of studies, you can look at the brain and kind of measure the pathology. When we do that and compare blacks and whites, we don't see any differences in the underlying pathology. Mm -hmm. You you might see more vascular pathology because, you know, black people tend to have more diabetes and hypertension. But the Alzheimer's pathology seems to be the same, the plaques mm-hmm. and tangles. So it's not clear really what's going on. We need more data. Definitely. And I, for me, it's always interesting to think about just the links back to systemic racism. And like you mentioned, you see more like vascular pathology, right? But how much of that is also linked to systemic racism and having perpetuated over the generations of having poor access to good quality foods and things like that. So I think it's so complicated teasing apart. You have a very difficult job. So another major challenge in any longitudinal study is obviously retention of participants. Have you experienced that in your research, this is more so? um, And what strategies have you implemented to increase retention? Yeah, I mean, dropouts, the longitudinal study, that is the biggest threat validity. Because if you lose half your sample, you don't know what you have left. 
So we actually have had very good retention. Um, I would say it's over 90%, which wow. is really good for, you know, a large longitudinal study. And uh, I think some of the keys to our success has really been that we give first. We give before we ask anything. So mm-hmm. when I first started my study, I worked in the community for about two years before I got the grant where I was just like, you know, doing health fairs, giving educational presentations about Alzheimer's and healthy aging, sponsoring different events for the community, really showing them that I was somebody who could be trusted. Right. right. And I did this for a couple of years. And so when I finally got the grant, the first grant, I was able to get all these letters of support from the community because they knew who I was, right? Mm -hmm. Me and my team, we had a history of giving first. That's one key. The second key has really been giving back because one of the biggest complaints the communities have is that we as researchers helicopter in with our grant and all our money, (laughs) collect data on them, and then leave when the grant dries up and they never hear from us. We don't do that. We make sure that the community knows what we're finding, why it is important. We ask for their feedback, their input. What should we be asking? What are some of the questions that are important to you? We try to make it a bi-directional relationship that's mutually beneficial to the community and to us so that we are partners together, right? They're not our subjects. We are actually partners in the process. And so I think that has been really instrumental in keeping people engaged and keeping them a part of the process. I think the third thing I would say that's really helped, this is you know something that I did in the first five years of the grant, because now mm-hmm. we're going into year 20. In the first five years, I visited every single participant in their home and thanked them for being in the study. I answered their questions. I really showed them you know, how much I appreciated their time and their Mm -hmm. participation. I cannot tell you what that small gesture did for the longevity of the study. People really felt like, I I mean, I do care, but they really felt it. They felt my heart. And I think that really sort of solidified the relationship. And so now, you know, 20 years later, people tell their friends, they tell their families about this study. And so a lot of our recruitment is now happening through word of mouth. Amazing. Because they enjoy being a part of this. And we have a great team. I don't think I told you, but I said we go to the community to recruit, but we also go to test. We never have people come to our institution because, you know, transportation is a barrier for Mm -hmm. older adults and then navigating a complicated medical system. So we send a team out to each person's house every year to collect the data. And over time, we're seeing people once a year, every year for 20 years, you're going to build a relationship with them, right? Sure. So people really feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And so I think all those things together help retention. Yeah, I have never heard of a setup like this. And I wish more people, more researchers were exploring setting up truly a partnership with communities. Because as you were speaking, I was imagining myself being in the participants' shoes and how that would make me feel absolutely like valued. Like you said, like I'm doing something that's bigger than myself. And it's just such a contribution and feeling valued. It's huge just wonderful hats off to you. And the other question I wanted to ask you is 
I'm sure it's not lost on you that you are a black woman faculty member <laughs> researching something that many researchers in the Alzheimer's field either do not consider important enough or are too risk averse to investigate knowing the uphill battle that they'll face in terms of funding and participant recruitment. So I'm sure you could write a book about the hurdles that you've had to overcome. What keeps you motivated? Yeah, thank you for recognizing that because it is a struggle and something that, you know, I have to face every day. I think the thing that keeps me motivated, though, is what we've talked about here. It's just really feeling in my heart that I'm making a difference. Mm -hmm. I look at my older African-American participants and I see my grandmother, you know, I see my older aunt, I see my mother, and I know that I am filling a knowledge gap, information that we don't have on a population that is suffering, you know, when it comes to health disparities. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that what I'm doing is making some difference, even if it's tiny, is making some difference in people's lives. Right. That's what keeps me motivated. And I have to share the story with you because on those times when I feel like I want to quit because mm -hmm. it's hard, because, you know, you're not respected, because people think that Black people aren't an important population to understand. We often have these retention events where we, you know, bring participants in, feed them and explain the results and what we're finding. I had this one woman stand up and say to me that she marched in Garfield Park with mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Martin Luther King back in the day before I probably was young child. And she said she was spit on. She was called names. She was, you know, it was a horrible experience, obviously. Right. But she said that if she knew that there would be a researcher like me studying black people who really cared about black people, she would do it all again. Wow. That basically she went through that to pave the way for someone like me. That's amazing. And when I heard that, I almost cried. Oh, I was I'm just like, oh my God, this is why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not so that I can get 300 manuscripts. Right. It's so that I can help people and I can pave the way for my children and my grandchildren so they have a better life. So yeah. those kinds of things are so important. And those kinds of things keep me motivated on those dark days when I just want to quit. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, the magnitude of what she said, really powerful. So in closing, I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about what national policy changes you would like to see to help us close the gap in understanding Alzheimer's disease in different populations. Yeah, you know, there's so much that can be done at a policy level. Probably the biggest or the most important thing that we can do right now is to really create policies or guidelines that enforce representation in these clinical trials and research. To me, it is shameful that less than 2% of clinical trials are diverse participants. Yeah. Participants who supposedly have a greater burden of the disease, even if the disease is not affecting people differentially as far as the biology, you know it's affecting them socially, right? Because mm -hmm. they have fewer resources to deal with it. They have a lower income so that they have to leave work to become a caregiver. It's going to impact them more, right? Right. So as a society, they are being burdened more by this disease, mm -hmm. yet they are not benefiting from science right. because they're not in studies. 
you know, so we have these three new treatments, right? There weren't very many Black people in the trial. So how do we know that these drugs, these medications even work in Mm -hmm. these diverse populations? So to me, we have to do something as a nation to create some kind of policy where that cannot be tolerated. Mm -hmm. You know, you cannot have a drug go to market and people were not in the study. Right. So I think that's going to be an important policy change that has to happen. Um, I don't know what it's going to take, but that's something that we definitely, I would love to see happen. You know, the other thing is that before that happens, make sure we inform patients. So if someone comes to your clinic and they want to get on this drug, yeah, absolutely, they should be on the drug. But tell them who was in the trial, tell them what the risks are, tell them what we do and do not know so that they can make an informed choice. That's not happening right now. I don't care if it goes on the label. I don't care if the FDA puts it on their website. People need to know the truth about these clinical trials. I certainly agree. And of course, the other big issue is the cost of these drugs, right? That goes onto market and who can afford them is probably not the same person that you mentioned that will not be able to afford a caregiver. So lots of things definitely need to change on the policy side. But how can medical students, physicians, and other healthcare providers help eliminate the disparity in research and treatment of BIPOC patients suffering from Alzheimer's? Oh, great question. There's lots of things that could be done by medical students and physicians. Help raise awareness. A lot of people, like I say, think this is a normal part of aging. So, you know, become educated as a physician or a medical student and really understand what this disease is and how it affects people so that you can help educate people. I think destigmatizing the disease. Mm -hmm. People think this is a disease of just old people and they don't talk about it, right? Yeah. When people get diagnosed, it's a secret. You know, Mm -hmm. they're ashamed. They're fearful. We have to work to destigmatize all of that. So as a medical community, I think it's up to us to really change the narrative around what this disease is so people don't feel ashamed when they're diagnosed. Also, as physicians and medical students, I don't know how much this is taught as part of the medical curriculum, but really working on our own biases, our own microaggressions, our own implicit biases that we have against people of color. Sometimes it's learned, sometimes you know it really is implicit. I think that that will help fix this fractured relationship that diverse Mm -hmm. people have with the medical establishment, if we can start looking at ourselves and figuring out how we treating patients intentionally or unintentionally to create this, you know, this separation, all those things will help us sort of change the dial and help us become a more compassionate medical establishment that can really embrace everyone. Definitely. And so lastly, where can our listeners go to learn more about your research? PubMed. Uh, my <laughs> papers are all on PubMed. Google Scholar. You know, I'm very Googleable. So yeah, if you just look me up um, and if you have an older Black participant or patient, you know, you think would be a great person, you can always email me, lbarnes1 at rush.edu. And if you want to participate or find out ways that you can become part of the research, let me know. Wonderful. Do you have any other parting words of wisdom? I just, I really appreciate that you're doing something like this, you know, that you're doing your part to just talk about the important issues when it comes to health and science and really help raise the awareness. I know you are in school now, you're working hard to build your career. 
So just don't get discouraged by the things that might happen along the way. And remember that you have a purpose in what you're doing and just keep striving for that. Thank you, Dr. Barnes. Really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.